Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. Here we are from Switzerland. We are here to speak about Rocheville and how it relates to the Billy Meyer case. We have Mac and Nick and Jeff and Gene and I am Schmelzer. I will be handling the whole conversation today, but seriously, folks, we um, decided to put together a little UFO roundtable to discuss the aftermath of Roswell, because no one's ever talked about that before, and uh, to figure out where this silly field called ufology is heading, and if we're ever going to actually get any answers. So, Nick Redfern, I know that you were uh, in Roswell for the festivities as they were. I was. What happened there? Well, the first thing that happened was I almost got heat stroke. Oh. <laughs> but uh, heat, heat stroke aside, it was, uh, I guess, kind of like a surreal week. You know, every year there's sort of a Roswell festival or event held that commemorates, if that's the right word, the, uh, the events of July 1947. I guess what sort of set this year apart from any other year, uh, possibly other than the 50th anniversary, was that this was again, a, you know, an, an anniversary year. So the whole town was literally just turned over to the whole UFO subject. And I think there were estimates were that somewhere in the region of 35 to 50,000 people in town wow. um, attending collectively, not just the conferences, but just hanging out and seeing what all the fuss was about, and you know, checking out the different places in town. So. You know, I think, on the one hand, the yes, there was a lot of good debate and discussion about the crash, but I think, to an extent, a lot of that is overshadowed by the fact that it's very much like a celebratory event. Not that anything wrong with that, I guess. It's just that, you know, the, the mystery of the UFO is eclipsed by the entertainment value of it, I think, now. Well, it sounds like this whole thing about Roswell as an entertainment event is the really unfortunate aspect of the celebration. It sounds like in many ways Roswell's turning this into um, an opportunity for commercial development. And you're right, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, anybody who saw the recent Larry King show with, oh, that guy, that that skept, quote-unquote skeptic, who I think it was just ridiculous, Shermer, well, he pulled out the little bouncy head uh, alien toy, and that was his way of countering any of the debate or discussion, was to say, look, there are toys. And the commercialization of this, yes, in some ways it's useful, but Mac, you have some thoughts about how this is really now passing from being any kind of a legitimate episode to more of mythology, right? Well, I, I don't like it. I, I agree with, with Nick and, and with David about having fun is one thing. There's nothing right. There's nothing inherently wrong with, with having some fun if the subject's UFOs as far as a, from a commercial perspective. But when it's the media pretending to do a serious critique or a serious analysis of the events, and people like Shermer um, employ little devices like that and do things to, to, to marginalize it without looking at it objectively, without, without any serious, uh, serious intent to, to look at any truth behind it. That, that's what bothers me is when it's done under the guise of, of journalism, and you see a lot of that. And, and you see a lot of that anyway, and there's been a dramatic increase of it lately because of the 60th anniversary of Roswell. So that's what particularly bugs me are the Seth Shostaks and the, and the Michael Shermers who know little or nothing about UFOs and care even less, but yet the media drags them out to be experts, you know, because that's the because that's the niche they've carved for themselves in the in the media landscape. So that, that is depressing to me, you know. Whether whether aliens are involved in Roswell or not, it's 
the material from the perspective of someone interested in the subject. And I don't like to see those guys made out to be quote-unquote experts when I think people that are familiar with this territory realize that that they're not, that they are playing they're playing a role, they're playing the role that they've created for themselves and that the, the media has reinforced. But couldn't you say that about the UFO enthusiasts? I mean, in a way, when you were just saying that, uh, Mac, I thought yeah, every time Fox does anything on UFOs, they bring on David Sarita as the pro-UFO person, and they put on the same ridiculous NASA footage showing you know, the artifacts of camera optics, which uh, Sarita keeps insisting are two-mile-wide mandala UFOs. I mean, so in a way, Sarita has carved out a niche for himself as the talking head who's pro-UFO, and Fox turns to him. I mean, I don't see you on there, Mac. Nick, I certainly don't... There's no middle ground. That's right. Now, of course, you see, if I ever wanted to get an iPhone, and AT&T is listening... They will simply say, hey, wait a minute, we don't want him because he said AT&T sucked. How dare he do that? We're going to send the men in black with the dark glasses and everything. And this crazy UFO nutcase has had it for good. It's not going to happen. Unfortunately, I don't want an iPhone. Well, no, that's not unfortunate. It means your brain is still working. Yeah, I think it is. Trust me, it is. Well, don't trust me, but it still is. The polarization issue is really significant in that it it would seem that in terms of any kind of discourse or debate about anything substantial in this country or or otherwise, the middle ground has sort of receded into the distance and everything now is couched in polarized terms. And I think this uh, this is very dangerous, ultimately, for our society. It doesn't get us any closer to understanding anything, you know? I agree wholeheartedly. There's this, well, Greg Bishop, uh, his former magazine, or I think I say the word former accurately, uh, the excluded middle. You've got this You've got this vast middle ground that's very stimulating and very interesting, but you don't hear that much about it uh, because it's it's challenging. It makes you, it doesn't make good sound bites. Michael Shermer makes great sound bites, as do many of the, the pro- the more uh, exuberant pro-UFO people. What I noticed about that, by the way, Mac, is that Stan Friedman, who usually is able to get the last word in, to basically talk over anybody if he wants to, this time it seemed that even he was overshadowed by the resident skeptic who kept interrupting everything he said. I didn't see the show, and I wish I had, uh, but it's kind of hard to watch television when you don't have a TV. And, um, and all in all, I, I figured I'd be able to catch it on YouTube, actually. And I looked last night, and I was able to, it hasn't been posted yet. I've heard reports about the, about the show and how it went. And, yeah, Stan Friedman's incredibly articulate, and it's a shame that he didn't get the last word in. Because at the very least, he's even if he doesn't issue a proclamation that Roswell was indeed aliens, he'll keep, he'll keep the argument alive as far as, as far as introducing or reinforcing the fact that there are things we don't know about this. Whereas the, the pseudo-skeptics like Shermer and Shostak, who's recently had several things to say about Roswell, none of them interesting at all, um, are very uh, concrete in their declarations about about the the phenomenon it's it's nothing it's it's uh, you know it's done for commercial reasons it's hysteria you know just rather ridiculous arguments and those guys generally get usually when you get when you pit those guys against Friedman or or Kevin Randall they kind of get their wind taken out of their sails a little bit so it's a shame to hear that Shermer of all people gets the final word 
Well, the problem is here you have to have a good and talented talk show host to rein in the people. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we stand in awe of the experts who have joined us for this Roswell and UFO Roundtable. Jeff Ritzman, Nick Redfern, Mac Tonys. Wow. Hey, let me ask a question here which revolves around uh, something that was on the previous week's show where we had Carrie and Schmidt, the authors of a new Roswell book. Okay, another new Roswell book as if we need one. And they're basically saying that they're the only people in the world who are real researchers, the real authorized researchers, and they attacked people who are armchair researchers who simply write books or make comments about Roswell. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They, they claim to be the only Roswell researchers, not of the course. only researchers. Of course. But of course. If we don't say that, then they're going to, you know, Don Schmidt will get on the phone and go, What are you talking about? I'm a Roswell researcher, you morons. You know, so you before, be we, before we proceed with that, one, our regular listeners, who's a participant in our message forums, talked to you, David, about the Roswell Festival, where he talked about a few people there, met a few people, and they said a few things about the Paracast that weren't so friendly. Well, are you surprised? Uh, we either love us or you hate us. It's so polar. You know, for example, apparently I heard that Nick Redfern put us down in a big way. Uh, <laughs> he, he said, oh, those American blokes, what a bunch of blowhards. Um, and uh, no, no, apparently, no. I'm sorry, Nick. Actually, that nothing of the sort was said. But there was something about you and some crazy sci-fi actress in a van. We'll have to talk about that later. Something about her getting undressed in the in the hot weather 
some madness like that. But no, apparently um, somebody went up and asked Daryl, of, of all people, Daryl Sims and... Um, and Schmidt, I, was it Schmidt? I mean, yeah, what, I think it was Don Schmidt. What yes, they it thought was, of the yes. Uh Yeah, and, and they're like, we don't like it there. That Bietney guy's fat and stupid, and Gene smells like cheese. Um, you know, something like that. And it was just, you know, it, I, and then Schmidt comes on the show and, you know, was actually uh, fairly interactive with us, though. Did get a little weird there. Hey, Jeff, I have a question for you. Sure. Have you ever dealt with uh, this Don Schmidt character in the past? I haven't. The, the, actually, the last stuff I remember hearing about him was, uh, and this is how long I've been not paying attention to him, is uh, since he was with Kevin Randall, and they found out that he was, you know, essentially lying about his background and, and you know, what he did. And, and pretty much, I mean, like you and I have talked before, you know, the, the whole community seems to have this really short-term memory as far as like the um, the credibility of people in this whole field i mean it's it's rampant that you know somebody gets uh, tossed out on their ear because they lied about something so simple as their background well you know and, what bothers you know, me that's what i wanted to talk to you about also and that is whether they or anyone has the right to legitimize a particular researcher say well this guy's an armchair researcher and we yeah. do of course we're there on site so we are better because of the fact that we visit visited Roswell a hundred times or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's like you guys were just talking about the press and, and who gets the most airtime, and I think any of us sitting here can pretty well surmise that the press tends to gravitate towards the bizarre. You know, that will be, you know, in any in any instance, they're going to gravitate to the most radical thought people. I mean, you'll never see a, or I'm yet to personally see anything on TV about the, uh, the you know, the whole abduction thing where they don't visit some Fruit Loop and God knows where you know who uh has the the wildest tale to tell i mean it just seems to be what it is and you know based on airtime i guess in public view that's what people consider to be someone who's worth listening to and it's just not the case you know i mean that's that's just how it seems to go i i mean legitimizing a researcher it shouldn't be legitimizing them it should be legitimizing what they're putting out what they're saying you know can you back it up you know is this documented who did you talk to where did you talk to them you know, and how credible is the messenger? That's always the biggest thing, bar none. Well, we're back to the polarization issue and the fact that at this point, television journalism especially has become really focused on profit and, and income. It's not no. like it used to be. There was a time when the news organizations uh, were not profit-driven, when they actually, the, the, big, the big studios, the big broadcasting companies, um, they tended to lose money in their news operations. And, and that was okay because uh, news was not considered a profit generator, per se. It, it, it was treated more as a, I don't want to say more as a holy entity, but, uh, yeah, essentially the news divisions uh, didn't have to report to the network overlords. They They had some autonomy, and certainly... Uh, everything that we saw predicted in the groundbreaking 1976 movie Network has essentially come true. Uh, and, and when Network came out in 1976, it was considered somewhat radical at the time, the way it presented this transformation of news into pure entertainment. And certainly, I think anybody who turns on even CNN at this point, I mean, CNN had built a reputation for itself as 
a really hard news organization. I think when you turn on CNN now, it's one, it's just like one degree left of Fox News. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's gotten to the point where, think about the last, I mean, anybody out there that's listening, do you think about the last UFO-based program that you watched, that you saw, and think about how many pieces of footage that they happen to show that either here or, or on ATS or wherever, that this was thing was shown to be a complete fake. And this is six months after the fact. I mean... Or years you know, after the fact, sure. Or Absolutely. years, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, money in general in this whole thing has gotten... In, 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 the, in the entire UFO thing, has gotten completely out of hand. I mean, I was—you were talking about Roswell and, and the, uh, you know, the museum and all that. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting on a page right now on Forbes.com that says each month uh, the museum greets visitors from 50 states and 35 countries. According to one analysis, it generates 35 million in indirect spending a year for the city of 50,000 residents. Now, I mean, what does that tell anybody here? You know that well, that a lot a lot of this stuff is 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 based on a dollar. You know, and as far as I can tell anymore, I kind of agree with with Mac that I don't know that we're it's been turned into this <laughs> this different thing now, and it's like you know people are coming out of the woodwork. Oh, I was a witness too, and I, I can't swallow any of it anymore. Really, I mean, well, I it's think, crazy. I think personally speaking, guys, I think the problem why that's happened to an extent at least has to lie squarely with the UFO community, and this is something I've discussed with people before is the fact that you know you look at the collectively the history of the ufo subject and the sheer number of reports on file what's happened is that instead of just being added to the body of intriguing reports which could point in this direction or that roswell has been elevated to almost this mythical status by elements of the ufo research community and the problem is you know that when you elevate a case instead of just you know lumping it in with all the rest to say well look here's a collective body of evidence we need to look at when you go beyond that and you make this case as it is for a lot of people almost like you know the make or break case of ufology or the eth at least then i think you know the media picks on it because it wants you know that make or break case that it can knock down in so-called authoritative tv documentaries and so i think that is the problem as i see it is that we as a community or elements of the community have elevated the case to such status that you know it's taken on a life of its own and were it not for the UFO community doing that I don't think it would you know I think the approach we can't go back in time obviously but I think the approach should have been to say hey this is an interesting case but also you know the Lonnie Zamora landing is an interesting case or the McMinnville photographs are interesting and try and soberly down to earth not sensationalize things, just look at the evidence on each case. And had that happened, we might make a lot more headway than having to fight through this whole swamp, if you like, of, of entertainment and endless TV shows, etc. We also, they want to focus on one case. They don't want to focus on 100 cases or 10 cases. So if Roswell has the 60th anniversary festival, hey, ladies and gentlemen, let's focus on Roswell because they've got all this pomp and circumstance and all this pretense. Let's Now, the other thing, the one thing that those two guests, Mr. Carey and Mr. Schmidt, said last week that I kind of agree with is that we disbelieve about everything the government says except about Roswell. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that, I mean, that's an interesting point. And I think the, you know, the, the problem with Roswell, you know, you just use the word believe. The problem with Roswell is that, you know, 60 years on, although, you know, I have the utmost respect for people who research Roswell and come to a conclusion based on the evidence that they, they think this or that is happening, they conclude that. But the problem is today 
at Roswell 60 years ago and actually doing evidence to the point of being able to prove something for any of us is really, you know, beyond us now. And it has become, as I mentioned in my blog a couple of times, you know, it's almost become on a status with something like in England, like Jack the Ripper. You know, you have this intriguing mystery where countless books have been written about it and various theories have been put forward, researchers, uh, you know, debate things, they agree, they disagree, they fight, and the media takes an interest because it's an ongoing mystery. And I think that's the problem with Roswell, is a lot of it now comes down to belief because there's nothing substantial beyond that to, to basically focus upon and, and again that is the other big problem with Roswell not just the fact that it's been elevated to such a status but that it's unlikely to be resolved because it basically defies being resolved so you know I think it, it's a really problematic case in several respects Hey there listeners have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. This is the Roswell UFO Roundtable featuring Nicholas Redfern, Mac Tonys, and Jeff Ritzman. We'll keep altering the order of the names so people are not necessarily given first preference. David. Well, plus, it's not the Roswell Roundtable. I, I, I don't think we should limit our discussion of this topic to Roswell, because I think what Nick just said is is probably correct. I don't think we're really going to ever get to the real bottom of this case because of the fact that at this point, there is just too much mythology surrounding it. Nick, along those lines, I'm curious to know, given that of the five of us, you were the one who was there for the 60th anniversary event. In speaking to people, did you get the sense that there were a good number of people there looking to have real understanding of this, or did you feel or find that the majority of people were there sort of either in an entertainment capacity or in the case of the speakers looking to make some dollars? What do you think? Um, that's a good question. I think as far as the, the conference speakers are concerned, the conference organizers and the attendees, there was definitely a, you know, a deep yearning, if you like, to understand what really happened and to see through new revelations. But, you know, you have to remember there were two conferences in town. The one I was at, which wasn't at the Roswell Museum, it was at the Civic Museum. Mm-hmm. That had, a, you know, a couple of hundred attendees at most, which is a, which is a decent turnout, yet there were sort of 35,000 people in town. So there's no doubt that the bulk of the people who were there were there for the entertainment angle. And, you know, fair enough, they're not ufologists, they're not UFO researchers, but they know that this is, you know, a, a big event and it's entertaining to take the kids along. You know, there were things like, you know, buy alien food, alien beer, there were bands playing, you know, there were parades up and down the town. 
so for families, I think it's more the entertainment idea of, you know, let's go and see the real X-Files and have a day out and meet some burgers and ice cream. But again, you know, I don't hold that against those people because they're not part of the UFO research community. You know, they're just members of the public. I, but I do think as far as the people who attended the conferences were concerned, that, you know, that there was a desire to know what's going on. But the feedback I got was predominantly, regardless of what the truth is, the question was, when are we going to know the truth? You know, and I keep coming back to this, I always say to people, I don't believe we will. I think it's entirely possible that somewhere we already have the answer, but actually proving that answer, you know, I, I just don't see how we can do that. Well, you bring up an important point, and I want to ask Mac. Mac, mm -hmm. what do you consider to be the prerequisites for being a quote-unquote UFO researcher? Oh, good question. <laughs> Very good question. Good Lord, some sort of media presence, whether it be a blog or a, whether you're a published author or a contributor to some sort of radio program or, or newspaper or something, I mean, obviously, you have to have some sort of way of, of letting your ideas be, be known. I think there's kind of this divisive uh, thing going on with, with researchers because you have armchair researchers, you know, people who have a sincere interest and, and uh, theorize and, and work with the available data. To, you know, published by others. And then you have field researchers who, who go out and interview witnesses and take ground uh, specimens and go around with Geiger counters and you know do all the all the muddy stuff and get their hands dirty with different cases and interview lots of people. And so it's kind of two different kinds of researchers right there. So, the, so theoretically, though, Mac, they should be working together then instead of having one camp yeah, saying that if you're an armchair researcher, you're not valid. That's what right. really irked me about Carrie and Schmidt, that because they were on the scene all the time, people yeah. who, for whatever reason, didn't go out and just look at the data, they're not valid. They're not legitimate. Well, you could also argue that any fool of a pickup truck can, can drive to a, to a site of an alleged UFO event. You know, that doesn't make you an expert by any means. Uh, certainly, you need someone competent on, on the site, to, uh, hopefully as soon as possible, to, to do your analysis and everything. But uh, I have nothing against people who haven't been to the sites of, of alleged UFO events that simply have thoughts to offer and perspectives to, to work with. I think that's an incredibly valuable asset, and uh, I don't agree with, with Schmidt on that one at all. But as far as what it actually takes to be a researcher, per se, right. I don't know. I, maybe the term researcher itself is kind of limiting. Like, sometimes I joke around, I say I'm a theoretical ufologist, because I'm not really a researcher in the sense that, that Nick is, or Friedman, or nor even Schmidt is. But I, I like to think that maybe sometimes I have something interesting to offer, you know, ideologically, maybe, or uh, from, from a literary perspective sometimes. And maybe I'm just, you know, flattering myself there but but yeah maybe you, you have theoretical physicists and they're not actually you know seeing these these super strings and 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 whatnot but they're dealing with them in an, in an intellectual capacity kind of a consensual space so maybe maybe there's such things as a theoretical ufologist someone someone who gets all these ideas and kind of puts them in the puts them in a super collider and sees what comes out the other end well actually in the field of physics um people who deal with things like string theory and uh, the multiverse they're looked down upon by quote unquote real physicists nuts and bolts physicists they they look down on the theoretical physicists and there is this issue of hey you know what we can talk about physical realities that are provable that are testable 
in a lab, whereas if you're talking about string theory... String really, theory is the Roswell of physics. Well, yeah. Yeah, in many ways it is. Jeff, I want to ask you a question because uh, you and I both share something sort of odd. And, and my question for you is, if you want to put yourself forward as someone who's studying the UFO phenomenon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this around a little bit. Instead of calling people researchers, I like to call myself a student of the paranormal and that I'm yeah, really interested great. in it, but I, I don't necessarily think I have any specific credentials. Jeff, do you feel that someone who has seen UFOs has been a quote-unquote experiencer uh, is more or less qualified to offer opinions about this topic? Ooh. Well, I guess that depends on the person, doesn't it? I mean, uh, sure. it's really going to come down to, I mean, we've both met a lot of people who either want something to be true or want something not to be true, I think you have to look at it from the standpoint of the individual. I mean, there's plenty of people out there things that are interested in it, but they don't know quite what they saw, and they're not quite sure they believe, you know, the commonly held theories out there. I mean, I know I don't. I'm probably the odd duck of all that because I don't necessarily believe any of it. But it's it's a real flip of a coin. It's going to come down to the individual, I think. I mean, you're looking at a lot of different theories that people have out there, and everybody's trying to grab the brass ring. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's really what it came down for me years ago. I mean, a friend of mine had said, uh, you know, everybody wants the brass ring. Everybody wants their theory to be the right one. Everybody wants to win the lottery, whatever. But it's going to come down to how does that, how's that person approaching it? You know, are they approaching it from the standpoint, well, I believe this guy's telling the truth, and now I'm going to prove it to the world? Or are they going in for the, the aspect of it could be real, or this guy could be trying to pull one over on me to make some money or or whatever. You know, it, to me, it's always going to come down to that individual. Are you more apt, you know, aptitude-wise, are you better to talk about that kind of stuff? I think if you've already seen it, I don't know, your preconceived notions can kind of taint that at some point. It has with me, but I don't know that anyone, you might, you might have a little bit more insight. You and I have talked about that, that visual thing where you look at something, you just you just know that that's not normal, and you, right. there's, the, right. there's that that guttural response that you get that you're like that's that's it right there that's it and um you know i mean you can you can get that but how how do you how do you write that up you know how do you convey that to other people i mean it's hard to do it's really tough to do and the way i've i've described it on the show and and in conversations with people is when you see something that is clearly out of the normal it is paranormal um there is this instant reaction this adrenaline shot because your eyes are seeing something and your brain is saying oh, oh no because right. the brain has has no reference point the brain has never seen something like this one of the things that was interesting about the phoenix episode 10 years ago and not the lights that were the flares but the big triangular craft the, the big boomerang shaped craft was that the people who saw it specifically said you know i know it wasn't one of ours because i've never seen something that big in the sky Right. And, you know, they're describing something essentially a mile long, 5,000 feet long. Now, right. I think people have a hard time visualizing that. And what I would suggest to them is that they look at a big cruise ship, like, you know, any like uh, the Constellation or, or you know, uh, the kind of cruise ship that's got a thousand passengers on it, whatever. That's those cruise ships are a thousand feet long, eleven hundred feet long. Now, take five of those, string them together and then put that up in the sky well, at that point, when your brain sees something like that, well, your eyes see it, your eyes relate to your brain, there's something a mile long in the sky, and the brain goes, no, there isn't. And the eyes are saying, yes, there is, there it is. And the brain right. says, no, no, no. That's and there is possible. this Exactly. There is this disconnect, and what happens 
is that if you're a normal person, quote unquote, it generates a real strong fear response because essentially you don't know what to do. And so the, the fight or the fight or flee comes in. And at that point, when you're looking at something that big, well, right. you just want to run. And this is what I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding, people who have not experienced this. And, and really, at that point, being a little humble about what humanity is and what we're capable of. Because once you see something like that, you say to yourself, we're ants with language. We're, we're viruses with shoes, to yeah. quote Bill Hicks. Uh-oh. And it's like, well, you know. I mean, at the same time, when, when, when you talk about, just for instance, the thing in Phoenix where people saw this immense thing in the sky. I mean, I, I understand where people would say that's truly bizarre. But I, at the same time for me, I've got to look at something like that and say, if I was there and I saw that, would I say there's, we don't have anything like that? Well, I can't say that because I don't know. You know, I mean, again, there are, I just, I look at the Black Project stuff that we see today that they've had since the 60s, and I say, okay, well, (laughs) you know, what do we have now that we're not going to find out for 20 years down the road? I mean, you know, I can't, I can't quite make that leap to say, I think that we don't have anything like that. Hey, I have seen stuff that I can say, I don't think we have anything like that. You have, uh, I have, but I can't say when it comes to certain things that I can say, yeah, that's absolutely 100% not from here. Here. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. And this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. This is a UFO, partly Roswell roundtable. How's that, David? With Jeff Ritzman. We make his name first this time. Ooh. Mac Tonys and Nick Redfern. And I wanted to ask one or two quick questions, and then Roswell is gone. Okay, we have these so-called alleged deathbed confessions, like Walter Hott, for example. As I recall, he mentioned something about seeing bodies. And then we have his daughter appearing on Larry King saying... No, he didn't see bodies at all. So what is going on here? Why do we have the deathbed confession here? And the daughter, who supposedly was involved in getting that along with these two authors, Schmidt and Carrie, what is the truth here? Why is there this disparity? I would have to say I'm not fully aware of all the details of that. I've just got the witness to Roswell book, and I'm going to do a radio of it, but I need to read it fully. And I, I didn't, unfortunately, see the Larry King show. I think in general terms, you know, when you're dealing with with sort of 60-year-old incidents and maybe there's a deathbed confession or the deathbed confession was given 20 years ago and one daughter remembers one thing, a son remembers another, an aunt and uncle remember something else, then, you know, I think I think it becomes problematic. I think the ironic thing is that a lot of these deathbed confessions are probably 
quite genuine. I think the problem is it's the interpretation of what the person's seeing. I mean, for example, you know, I wrote a book called Body Snatchers in the Desert, which suggested a down-to-earth theory for Roswell. However, the ironic thing was that the scenarios that the witnesses or the people I interviewed presented, i.e. a number of crash sites, exotic-looking vehicles, unusual-looking bodies, actually tied very, very closely with the ETH believers, if you like. The only difference was the interpretation that the witnesses and the people involved were putting on the materials and the bodies they saw. Some perceived them to be extraterrestrial, others claimed they were handicapped human subjects. So I think, again, you know, the, the problem is not so much that we've got deathbed confessions, but how we interpret memories and how we interpret what those people were interpreting 60 years ago in terms of confession. And I think that's where things become problematic. And again, it's related to this whole issue of Roswell being an ancient case with pretty much everybody dead and, and no no evidence and no files. Speaking of ancient cases, of course, on a previous week's show, we had a discussion about Betty and Barney Hill. And one question I asked of Stanton Friedman and Kathy Martin was this. Is it possible that there was some government experiment involved? And the reason I came up with this theory, which I voiced again on the next week's show, is because of the fact that, number one, Betty Hill was in the military. Number two, they lived near a military base. Number three, most of their friends were in the military. Now, in each case, they kind of were very dismissive, especially Stanton Friedman very dismissive of even the idea well how would they know they didn't tell anybody they were doing this trip and i said well about surveillance and that question was never answered so in looking well at- you know gene don't sure. bother me with the facts my mind's already made up this is where i think friedman is guilty of a lot of things that he projects on other people he's become a nasty noisy negativist then well, I, I won't say that. I think very highly of the work that Friedman's done over the years, and I don't think that any of that should be discounted. I think that he's done some really hard research, and that's something that I think for a lot of people who are in this field, they can't make that claim. I, I'm not so sure when Stanton makes claims about being you know, the only scientist involved in the field. He's got some point to that. Of course, he hasn't been a practicing physicist in a long time, and I'm not trying to in any way denigrate the man's background, but... I think that he is, at this point, really vested in a certain approach and a certain um, set of theories about this, and that he really doesn't want to hear anything different. I think the first time we had him on the show, um, we brought up with him the issue of, hey, you know, what are the possibilities of these creatures being interdimensional beings? And to say that he just sloughed it right off as being kind, he he gave us a really almost a derogatory response, you know, saying, you know, why why are you go turning to something so esoteric? I mean, he keeps talking about nuts and bolts, and I submit that the one thing I realize about this field in all the years I've been interested in it is that the notion of nuts and bolts when it comes to talking about the paranormal is almost comical. I don't know that you can talk about nuts and bolts stuff because really, you know, what I will say is that at this point, we don't really have any significant amount of physical evidence that has been corroborated by third parties in a scientific fashion. There's all sorts of stuff floating around. But, you know, when you start talking to people about, let me have access to some of those metal samples. Let me have access to that dress that the aliens touched. What you get is, oh, no, no, I'm not going to give you access to that because then the government will take it. Well, the dress, it's read the book. We can't tell you anything about it. Well, yeah, and I thought that that was an issue. You know, we talk about, just to get back to the notion of researchers, someone who I've always found really credible is Dr. Bruce McAbee because this guy is an optical physicist. This guy does really hard 
research work, when he gives his opinion about photographic evidence, this is a guy who's been trained in photography, who's been trained in optics, who, you know, when he makes a proclamation about uh, photographic evidence, I think he's worth listening to. And I'm going to throw that name out there because, uh, you know, there have been all sorts of accusations and little stories that come up. Oh, he's a government operative, which, of course, is what David Sarita called me when I confronted him with his crap. He said, you're an NSA operative. And I said, you're an idiot. <laughs> because And that was declared mildly. Well, you know, I said <laughs> probably something a little worse than that. But the point is that, yeah, when we're talking about researchers, it is nice to see a little bit of science applied to this. I mean, I, I won't talk about anything as a researcher with except with exception to one area which is photographic image analysis i'm i'm capable in photoshop i think i'm more than capable i have a long list of credentials and that's the only place where i'll come to this field and say all right i'm going to give you a qualified opinion and it is just that so nick and mac i'm really curious because i think i know what what jeff thinks about maccabee but I'll, I'll, Jeff, I'll let you get a word in there. Mac and then Nick, what, what do you guys know about Bruce Maccabee, and what do you think his status is as a researcher in the field? I'm curious. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Nicholas Redfern, Jeff Ritzman, Mac Tonys, Nick and Mac. We'd like your response about Dr. Bruce Maccabee. We had a lot of fun with him on the show, by the way, when we was on recently. Who wants to take it, Nick? <laughs> They're fighting over it right now. Both of them, you know, from, yeah. from their various places in, in the world. They're just fighting over the first It's a place. cacophony of silence. <laughs> and we'll That's start with I don't mind them. Um, now, I mean, you know, I know Bruce. I've met him on a number of occasions. And I think, as you said, he's done a lot of good work. And, you know, you have to realize the fact that he is trained in the field that he's trained in. You know, he's the ideal person to undertake that sort of research. You know, I think that this is something I come back to. When you've got someone like Bruce, who's researching a particular case, using his the benefit of his expertise and saying, hey, you know, this appears to be a legitimate UFO, doesn't appear to be fakery or trickery. Why is it that something like that, with someone of that standing behind it, why is it that that sort of takes second fiddle, third fiddle, or tenth fiddle to Roswell, which is a case we'll never resolve? That's the thing that I have the problem with, is that there's some great people out there doing good research with expertise, with training behind them, and yet it all gets eclipsed by, you know, the whole crash retrieval angle, which is seen as almost like the holy grail of the subject. You know, I think I think that's unfortunate. That's sort of, you know, my approach, regardless whether it's Bruce or somebody that's trained in radar technology, etc., or whatever. You know, if you've got a great radar case and, and an expert analyst looks at it and says, yep, you know, there was something there. It was seen on the ground radar. It was seen on the airborne radar. And yet, okay, it's just another radar case. Well, you know, why should it be just another radar case when it's clearly evidence of something in our airspace that, that didn't belong to us? So, you know, I think, again, that's 
that's sort of indicative of the situation that a lot of people like Bruce are in. You know, great research, great findings, but the media just wants to focus on the case that we've all put up on top of the pedestal. I'll enter that with Nick Longnick's line there. Is that whenever the Roswell case, we have this perception that it's the you know the greatest case ever when clearly it's not but yet whenever it's dragged up every 10 years when they have the anniversary it's it's not the roswell case that's put on trial every 10 years it's the whole ufo phenomenon mm-hmm. unfortunately and uh, yeah next right we we ignore great cases that have been, been investigated by by trained scientists that have much more evidence favoring them than Roswell, but yet Roswell, because of its cultural connotations, just rises to the top every time, predictably. Well, also and some authors have basically tied their entire life to Roswell and it being the case for them. They've written books about it. They've spent large portions of their lives researching it. Certainly. Yeah, and both parties, such as they are, the, the mainstream media and the uh, and the UFO community are, are both, to a large degree, guilty of this. It's something that uh, needs to be overcome and needs to be overcome as quickly as possible. I, I find it very lamentable. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about some of those other cases, all right? Now, I mentioned Betty and Barney Hill because that's presented as the king or queen of the abduction cases, although I gave the suggestion that maybe there's some government involvement there. So what do you guys think? Do you think that's the king of no. the cases? Okay, so what do you think, Mac? What are your favorites? I think it's just another interesting case. It wasn't the first of its kind. It was the first publicized case. When you approach, you know, when you approach the whole abduction um, abduction mythos as a, you know, as, a, as an evolving narrative, or as um, a sociological phenomenon, phenomenon that the, the Hill abduction takes huge precedence over many others. But as far as the case itself, I think there are others that are just as good, and perhaps the Hill case isn't quite as good as we typically uh, make it out to be. Maybe you know, it's it's a fascinating case to be sure, but I'm not sure that it's conclusive evidence of alien abduction. Cool. I think there are factors at work that could have been perhaps psychological, and you know, I, some people will just hate me for even suggesting that. Because you know, I'm not. I'm not. I don't consider myself a, a out to debunk any any particular case. But uh, I'm not as impressed with the, with the Hill case as some people are. Some people like Carl Flock. You know, although he was very adamant, a very adamant anti-abduction researcher, he considered that exclusive. He considered the Hill case like, well, this is one example of of a probable abduction case, you know, while all, all others apparently are, are not. And I don't reserve any special any special sentiment for the, for the Hill abduction case. I don't think it's necessarily the best, the best evidence of, of something going on. I do think that there's an ongoing interaction with some form of intelligence, and, and the Hill case very well might be part of that. But on the other hand, I'm not sold on it, on its merits alone. It seems to me that the Hill case has become kind of the Roswell for abduction research. Mm-hmm. And I'm really wary of that when a single case comes to epitomize an entire focus of research. So for, maybe for that reason alone, I'm wary of it. Well, Mac, what would your, in your opinion, be a very compelling case then? It would probably be, wouldn't be a case at all. It would probably be the whole is more than the sum of its parts, kind of that kind of thing. I, it would be a, I'm searching for the right term here, but it'd be a conglomeration of, of many other cases of you know an ongoing dialogue, if you will, with, with some form of intelligence that's been going on since 
since prehistory. And I think it seems very elusive by its very nature. And, and we kind of come back to the whole nuts and bolts um, issue here, where that seems to be the holy grail of, of contemporary ufology. And it probably shouldn't be, because I think the most compelling evidence is verbal and, and uh, passed and passed down orally or, or written down. And it's easy to debunk cases like that on an individual basis, but when taken as a whole and looked at and examined for patterns, it's, it becomes increasingly tempting to um, think there's something to it besides just you know cashing in on on some fashionable weirdness. So I'm not sure if I have a specific case in mind that I would hold above all others, but I think that when you assemble all of the abduction cases and all of the contact cases, we shouldn't leave those out. But I keep talking about abduction cases, but it, I just mean contact cases, and you know maybe even when there's no humanoid present, but cases in which some sort of alien intelligence is perceived. If you get all of those and you assemble those and you, and you examine these for patterns and, con, and consistencies, I think that adds up to, to, to a legitimate enigma, something that we should be studying. Whether you can break it down into, into individual cases that will prove it, which has been tried again and again, like Bud Hopkins, you know, he found the witnessed case and you know, he thought that would be the ultimate abduction case. And of course, it has very nuts and bolts trappings, which is in keeping with kind of what we expect. But we see this, we see this happening again and again, and I don't think we're going to find it. And I think it's the nature of the phenomenon that's going to prohibit us from finding it. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's the phenomenon that, that will yield physical, tangible, palpable evidence that we crave so much. And, you know, justifiably so, I suppose. But it kind of challenges us to revise our research paradigm. And well, that sounds you know, kind of like I'm fucking the, dodging the whole issue, I suppose. But Well, yeah, you are. But that's okay. Um, uh, because what you said is interesting that um, verbal reports and verbal accounts of observations are real compelling. What was really wild when Shermer was on the King show was that he made the claim that you can't trust any human observations ever. And yeah. even went so far as to say, which I found absolutely outrageous, that a pilot was no more qualified to discuss or evaluate aerial phenomenon than any other any other person. That person was not in any way an expert, and, and their accounts and eyewitness testimony should not be considered and weighed with in, in a more significant way than Joe Schmo on the street reported. That's something. Shermer I, showing his true colors as, as a pseudo-skeptic. Well, maybe what we should be doing... Yeah, intellectually maybe, dishonest, in my opinion. Maybe what we should yeah. be doing here is letting out all the convicted murderers who have been convicted by eyewitness <laughs> testimony because, uh-huh. obviously, they can't be depended upon. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. 
in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast, and we're in the first hour of our special UFO roundtable featuring Jeff Ritzman, Matt Tonys. Hey, you you put him Redford. twice in a, you put him first twice in a row. Colonel Ritzman, where is the best case ever? Because I know nothing, Colonel. Uh-huh. And you, Ritzman, you are the king. Where is Where's all the, the good cases? Where's the good cases? Oh, wait a minute. No, we, have, we have also have Mac Tonys, or as Cal Corp says, Mac Tons. There's Big Mac and Nick Tons. Redfern and Nick Redfern, who unfortunately Nick and and I'm going to do this to you because I just I just like crapped on everybody else. So now I got one for you. I saw you on that episode of Penn and Teller's BS show with the oh, ghost yeah. hunting. Man, you should have hit those guys. You should have defended yourself. Jeez. Well, do you not realize how they made that show? That they, you, they actually don't get to meet them. Really? What happened was, is that they, the participants in the show go out to the location of, you know, whatever it is you're investigating. In our case, it was a haunted house in a little town in Texas. Mm-hmm. And they pre-film it, then they take the footage back to the studio, edit it for the program, and then oh, to look, watch it and offer their opinions. The actual participants, such as myself, our job ends literally when they finish the filming out in the field. We, we didn't get to meet anybody from the program other than a hired cameraman and obviously the producer, that was it. Wow. Oh, but I mean, again, that's the nature of that program. Program, you know, by its name, <laughs> you know that, that that is the thing. Is that you know, I, I'm quite happy to argue with the best of them. But the problem is that if you're taking part in a pre-recorded show and then the right. presenters of the show, you know, offer their opinions afterwards, you just simply have no way of of, of countering that opinion. Now, to turn the question that we asked Mac before, in your opinion, and, and I know you've looked at a lot of cases, what's the one or two that stand out to you as the ones that have captivated your interest? The most. Yeah, I think one of the problems with a lot of talk shows, if you like, or documentaries on UFOs, where, for example, the researcher is pre-recorded out in the field investigating something, it means that unfortunately, you know, whatever show it is, that when it gets back into the studio and it's edited down, and then, you know, they bring someone on to comment on it, unfortunately, if your piece was pre-recorded two weeks earlier, as is very often the case in making shows, you simply have no vehicle or outlet to respond to criticisms or claims and you know you may well have very good strong responses and answers but you know you, there's just no way you know to, to voice those opinions or theories you know that is one of the hazards when it comes to doing tv work you know the nature of the beast so to speak is that you're out in the field you're pre-recorded and you know you sign away you know a release form and then whatever happens happens so to speak so you know on the one hand it's like it's like a double-edged sword it's good to get publicity and get the word out out and inform people of what you're doing and your findings, but then, you know, you're, it's in the will of the gods, if you like, or the hands of the gods as to what happens to it when it airs on the TV. So but, basically, uh, then, if they had some kind of ulterior motive and wanted to make you look like a fool, you could be an expert in anything and sound really sensible and logical, but with a little bit of editing, you're just an idiot. Well, I don't think it's much even editing. I think it's just that if somebody questions what you're saying, 
you're just not there at the time to offer an, what might be a legitimate and very worthwhile answer to that question. Sure. But that's the problem, you know. That's why I prefer actually sort of one-to-one roundtable debates in a live situation where anything goes, you know, and argue and I'll argue with the best of them. I don't particularly enjoy this situation of, you know, they film you for an hour and you see two minutes on the screen and it's all taken out of context. That's the problem I have with some of these, you know, documentary shows. That's pretty much the deal with any kind of a documentary or any kind of, um, certainly television news is all about concision. And if you can't fit something in those like 10 seconds or 20 seconds, then they're not interested in even talking to you, really. Well, you know, the the problem is it's something that Matt brought up earlier and it's something that's sort of very perceptive. And that's the issue that, you know, a lot of TV documentaries today actually aren't about investigations and informing people. They're actually about entertainment. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. Of course, we all want entertainment. But on the other hand, you know, to me it seems like the idea of an unbiased documentary Particularly on UFOs, just doesn't exist. You know, it's like you can literally see the producers and directors in the office. Okay, we need to get the UFO researchers in to give their opinion, and then we need three or four debunkers who are going to just basically smash it down. You know, we're going to film the UFO researchers, however long beforehand, get their testimony down, and then, you know, make sure the debunkers have the last word. You know, that's not about legitimately trying to get across, you know, the details of the investigation, that's just pure entertainment and following a preconceived agenda, which to me is wrong. You know, I'd have more sort of faith and respect for some of these shows if they did say, hey, you know, we actually don't know what happened, we'd like to get the sceptics and the believers on, and then, you know, leave it to the viewer to decide, rather than have the sceptics say, you know, the UFO believers are just spouting garbage, which unfortunately is the norm, I think. Hey, we're at the end of hour number one of the Paracast featuring our special UFO roundtable with Mac Tonys, Nicholas Redfern, and Jeff Ritzman. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Back at the Paracast for our second hour, a UFO roundtable featuring Mac Tonys, Tonys, Jeff Ritzman, Ritzman, Nicholas Redfern, <laughs> and my colleague David Biedney. No, he's not here now. My way left. Oh, he's okay. gone. He's gone. Huh? I'm the ghost of David Sarita here. Now I'd like to talk about mandalas. You see, the problem also with the UFO field, and I and have one arm like Billy Meyer. I won't let you say anything right now because I know that Mr. Ritzman wants to say something silly. That raises the whole problem Jeffrey, here. Help me, Jeffrey. Okay, I, I put that guy in a little box for what? a second. No, no, I, no, no you get box. to. No, 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 you, you have to put up with this madness. Okay, well. Because you see, this is really what the UFO feels about, about all sorts of people who want to be heard. <laughs> hey, speaking of which, this raises the problem in the specter that, for example, this is the problem with the UFO field, is that there are so many different factions when the media wants to get spokespeople, they get a David Sarita. And maybe they don't see that David Sarita and Mac Tonys and Nicholas Redfern and Stanton Friedman and all these other people are different and have different points of view, different levels of authority. But they don't no. understand that. No, I agree with Nick. I think they know exactly what they're doing. When they call up Sarita, they know he's an asshat. He's going to say stupid junk. That's going to be completely ridiculous and laughable. And I think they do that on purpose. I think they do that so that the f- subject is not taken seriously. And I have to tell you, that Larry King show the other night, Shermer ended up looking like a fool. 
I thought he actually came off really bad. Even if he might have gotten the last word, he did not present anything legitimate, really. He said the most outrageous stuff, like that you, you can't trust a pilot to be a good observer. You know, stuff like that, which what Max said, it was just really indicative of his actual agenda. Sure, sure. I wouldn't fly again after listening to this guy. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or gee, Mr. Shermer, I guess when you go to the doctor and the doctor observes you and listens to you, that he's not really qualified to make an actual diagnosis based on his observation. What about using feathers to treat you then? We just get feathers out and we... No, leeches. Leeches, man. No, no. Go right for the leeches on your skin. You might as well. Is that like the bloodletting or something like that? Yeah. Leeches. They just, you slap them on and then when they're done, you throw them on a frying pan with some garlic, and they're delicious. What? No, but now our guests are going, how can I like hang up the phone and make believe my connection's cut? And get off this damn show. But no, the thing is that we come back to polarization and the fact that people are fighting for their theories to be the only ones that are legitimate. And I know in the case of Mac, Mac has come out on his blog and even talked about some of his theories on this show that I think have made him let's just say have not made him a lot of friends because of the fact that he really is doing some original thinking. That's one of the reasons I really like having him on the show. I think that Max on to something with, with where he's going certainly with regards to what might be the real source of these creatures and there's been a lot of stuff we've talked about with jeff both on the show and privately that i think leads us towards the stuff that mac is thinking about and i think what it's we have to do in the in, in the in the realm of ufo study i won't call it research let's call it study is we have to sweep away a lot of the cobwebs and try to approach this from maybe a more original, I should just say different point of view. I think that in many ways, what the Roswell situation shows us is that we're stuck in a bit of a quagmire. You know, we, we are, we're treading water here. And for those of us who would like to try to gain some sort of deeper understanding of this, whether or not that's possible, I don't know. For those of us who really are trying to look into this and trying to get a handle on what's going on, we need to reset the computer. We need to basically, maybe not completely reset it, but just be open to new ideas about this because it's pretty clear to me, at least, and I'd be curious to know what everybody else on the panel thinks, that if we keep going down the current road, we're going to be seeing nothing more than more infighting, more polarization, more noise, more of turning this field into entertainment versus actual research of any sort. It's time to take a stand and to say, you know what? We have to throw some of the sort of the, the really treasured myths and the, the stuff that people are protecting. We need to throw this stuff out. And, and, and just to really up, upset the table now, I think we need to do the same thing with the political discussion on this planet. I think it's time, for example, in the United States to take Republicans and Democrats and just burn all of it down. I don't think it's serving us anymore because basically we're no longer in a government uh, that's two parties. We're in a one-party corporate feudal state, and it's not serving us. It's certainly not serving the masses. It's serving a very small number of people. In the realm of paranormal research, this polarization of either from outer space or are they just figments of the imagination, I don't think it's either of those. So I'm curious to know what other members of the panel think about this idea of turning the table upside down. I'm all for it for explaining my 
two cents on that. I, I totally agree with you. So how do we do that, Mac? How do we turn the table? Is it even possible at this point? Well, that's a, that's, that's a big problem. You, you turn one little, you try to you try to change one thing, and you've set up a domino effect, and everything gets changed. And you know, I think there's a lot of people who who agree with you, and I think there I think there's a faction out there who's, who sincerely and, and literally thinks that on December 21st, 2012, some galactic cycle is going to reboot the human computer and re- everything will be different and better. And then in your technology crowd, you've got people who are eagerly anticipating the singularity, you know, that's going to happen here in 2030. And undoubtedly something, you know, something will. The law of accelerating returns with technology, but it's not going to alter the human predicament in any massive existential way. It's not going to redefine who we are. And uh, unfortunately, we're still we're still stuck with our will to believe and our will to debunk. So, yeah, we need to turn anything turn anything upside down, but we need to do it kind of in a viral way, not in the, not in the physical violent way, but in a more insidious way, kind of kind of a kind of a biological warfare kind of way, where we introduce little little memes into the into the ideas pool and uh, let them work their way but in order to do that you have to quite a bit of an intelligence quite a bit of intelligence at your disposal and um, the vehicle community as a whole is lacking some of that and it's lacking it's also lacking internal consistency and coherence so, you know, good luck getting getting the quote-unquote UFO community to cooperate with itself in order to enact changes like this. Well, that's what upset me so much about what was said on last week's show with Mr. Carey and Mr. Schmidt, to mention their names again, because they have this separation between the armchair and the field researchers, and it got me going crazy. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the We are not crazy to say you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney 
And we have a UFO roundtable in progress in the second hour featuring Nicholas Redfern, Jeff Ritzman, Mac Tonys. Okay, Mac, you've had your say. What do you think about it, Jeff? Well, I mean, I think what David mentioned about the political thing is is, is a great parallel because, again, you're, you're talking about a system that's been in place for a long time, and you're talking about, at least in, in this field of study, we're looking at a lot of people's incomes dependent on you know their the particular hypothesis and getting them to abandon that is going to be next to impossible i don't see i mean and i love the guy but i, I don't see stan freeman like turning around and saying uh, tomorrow you know well they could be extra dimensional or they could be from the ocean or they could inside the earth i don't see that happening anytime soon and on the other hand you've got you know uh, certain whack jobs out there that this is literally their religion and I don't see them turning around and saying, well, maybe we were wrong, <laughs> you know. So until those kind of factions or, or thought processes tend to, to fall by the wayside, I mean, you have to be hopeful that people are going to be smart enough to say, okay, in X amount of years, what kind of tangible proof do we have of anything? What kind of data do we have on anything? And does any of it point to anything of an extraterrestrial nature or does it point someplace else? And, and I've been... You know, since probably 1980, you know, I've been saying to people, you know, I don't see this thing as being little green men from another planet. And even today, I've I ran into somebody when I was vacationing down the beach that was a Paracast listener, and uh, you know, he he made the statement to me, and we we were talking about the show, and he said, so, so you've been into this for a while. I said, yeah, you know, uh, uh, too many years to count anymore. And and he said, well, what do you think they are? I said, I don't know, (laughs) you know, and and I think he got not aggravated but kind of like was blown away that i didn't know or that i didn't really have a solid theory i mean if there's nothing out there that points to a certain direction then i fail to see why people tend to want to chase any hypothesis at all but rather to spread them out on the table and say these are all viable and I'm just, I kind of shared David's aggravation when Stan was kind of like poo-pooing away the the possible of extra-dimensional you know things like that. It kind of kind of surprised me in a way because somebody like Maccabee, I've had you know pretty extensive dealings with over the years, has has never taken anything off the table, you know. And he'll be the first one to tell you, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, which is always kind of why I liked his uh, I liked his outlook on stuff, and I uh, I always thought of him as being a pretty credible guy. I know that every Everybody runs into problems sooner or later in their UFO career, quote-unquote. You know, and his stuff with Gulf Breeze, of course, you know, some people think he was, you know, less than forthcoming about a lot of stuff. But, I mean, all the monkey business aside, those kind of people who want to keep the book open is probably the best thing that can happen. Because eventually, I think all of these theories that don't seem to add up are eventually going to fall by the wayside just by process of, of some kind of elimination, maybe. And, and that's that's the only way I see it happening. I don't see anybody, you know, like Max says, injecting certain theories here and there. That's that's a good idea, but, you know, is it going to take? You know, I don't know. Nick, what do you think? Well, you know, I think I would agree broadly with what everybody said. I think ufology does need a good overhaul. And one of the things I've said several times is that what ufology really needs is its own equivalent of V prevent from vendetta. You know, just something that radically overhauls the subject. And I think, I actually think that that's going to happen. I'll tell you why I think it's going to happen. I think the so-called modern-day ufology, as it stands right now and as it stood for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, has been based upon the fact that the people who are still in the subject now 
parents of the elder statesmen of the subject grew up in that whole keyhole, high neck, Stringfield era of, um, you know, the, the, the classic sort of metal spaceships that you can bang on the side of, aliens are coming down taking soil samples, etc., etc. And I think that as the old guard just die away, you know, just through the inevitability of old age, and you have newer, younger people coming along with sort of new belief systems, ideas, paradigms, that the old theories, if you like, won't so much get overhauled, but they'll just get revolutionized purely because, you know, everybody who's coming into the subject new isn't necessarily tied to or, you know, fully aware of the the, the 40s and the 50s and how the whole little, literal metal spaceship angle of the subject dominated everything back then. And I think that collectively what we should be doing as a community is not sort of upholding belief systems or just, you know, going along with the flow, going along with the pack. I mean, I've seen people, depressingly enough, who, you know, promote the ETH at conferences and, you know, through private conversations behind the scenes, you know, at the bar or whatever. I know for a fact from listening to them, you know, they're just not prepared to say anything too controversial that's going to get them risk, risk having them thrown off the ETH lecture circuit, if you like. And to me, that's madness. You know, and, it, and it's cowardice. People should like Mac, you know, Mac's going out on a limb with the crypto-terrestrial theory, which is a good thing. You know, simply harking on about the old days, etc., etc., does no good because after 60 years, we still haven't been able to prove that ET's visiting. We've been able to, I think, demonstrate that something weird's going on, something interacting with us. But in terms of providing valid, firm answers, we haven't really got anywhere. And so, you know, I think we need that overhaul. We need people to take chances and look at different ideas, different theories, put them all out there and not be tied to this idea that, you know, it's entertainment, it's the dollar angle, that we need to stay on the lecture circuit. You know, we don't want to upset that organizer because, oh, he's not going to book us again for a lecture or whatever. You know, that's stupid. You know, people need to have a bit more bottle and gumption. And I'm glad people like Mac are actually, you know, going out on a limb and saying, hey, you know, maybe they're not from out there, maybe they're from down here, and actually not caring if people agree with them or not, but just putting the material out for people to see. So here's when you were saying, Nick, that, you know, hopefully this will get a little better when we have some young blood come into this. My reaction to that is to look at young people these days and realize how incredibly indoctrinated they've become in, in the media. And how so much of their opinions and their thoughts are controlled by the media. Do you think that it's even possible that a young person could come in at this point and not be completely, how should I say this, sort of skewed towards things like the ETH or, you know, really sort of um, intellectually polluted by all of the stuff that's been out there? That's a good point. I mean, I think it can sort of, I think it can go both ways. I mean, you know, the media does take this approach that it's, there's nothing to it or, you know, people believe that aliens are coming to Earth in literal nuts and bolts spacecraft. There isn't much time given to sort of the esoteric valet keel type aspects of the subject, which to me is unfortunate because I think that's where a lot of the answers are going to be found. I think perhaps more disturbing, you know, is the idea that today kids just seem to want instant entertainment. You right. know, if it's not on the computer or it's not on the TV or it requires a little bit of physical exercise, 
they don't want to know about it. You know, right. it's, uh, burgers, fries, diabetes-inducing sodas are far more important to the age sure. kids than, than finding answers to something that could actually have some sort of bearing on their lives. And that's sad. You know, it's like the days of when I was a kid, and you know, seeing healthy, fit kids riding around, you know, the countryside on their bikes, you know, exploring a little pool and saying, wow, what's that, what's this? You know, that's gone. And you could actually parallel that with ufology, maybe, that, you know, that's people just coming into the, you know, their teens and 20s now just, just don't care and, and won't care, not through any fault of their own, but just for the, you know, the nature of how society's changed and people being brought up. And I think also there's a fact that, you know, we tend to think of our community as this huge organization that's speaking to the world and, you know, the world's going to know one day <laughs> thanks to us. No, no, no. <laughs> we're, we're a small community of a couple of thousand people that subscribes to magazines, buys journals, fights with each other, argues, occasionally sits down and has a drink together, and that's all we are. The rest of the world doesn't care other than, you know, occasionally watching the occasional show on this channel or that channel and thinking, huh, that's interesting, you know, what time's dinner? So I think <laughs> we have that to deal with. Right. Um, we're not this huge community. We could be a, a major force if collectively we sort of got our act together. But even then, you know, until the hard evidence is found of a, an alien body or something substantial, no one's really going to care. And I think, you know, we're actually becoming the equivalent of, say, I know, poltergeist investigators of a hundred years ago, or like Victorian seance people, that sort of thing, or people investigating fairies 500 years ago. You know, we're either going to become extinct or we need to realize that the approach we're taking and the avenues we're following aren't providing us the answers and we need to break out and I think some of us are doing that and some of us aren't and are going to go to the graves not doing that either. I think, and I'm going to say this with some degree of trepidation, but I think what it's going to take ultimately is some very motivated, very wealthy person with deep pockets to fund a research institute and to say devote something like $100 million over, let's say, five years are you going to call Bill Gates for us? No, no, because Bill Gates doesn't give a damn. That's um, true, that's true. And, you know, maybe Paul Allen may might give a damn, but he's thrown so much money at so many bogus projects that uh, it's doubtful that he'd be interested. But I think it's going to take somebody who is not looking for a profit motive, who says, I'm going to take this chunk of dough and I'm going to give it to a group of people who now are going to get a salary, don't have to go out and chill themselves or pimp themselves on the circuit, and can actually sit down and for five years amongst themselves have the kinds of resources and time required to really dig down, to really market this idea in a way that takes it out of the realm of the ridiculous. I mean, if you took the profit motive away, and you, that would, I think, reduce the sensationalistic approach a little bit, I think ultimately people are interested in this. And I think that if you need any example that that's the case, look at how popular the ridiculous, irrational belief system that is so so parallel in many ways to the paranormal and UFO worlds, which has had 2,000 years of branding thrown at it and a tremendous amount of uh, money thrown at it, a.k.a. organized religion. Look at how much of a hold they have on the world. I mean, I find it much more realistic to want to question a metallic object I see in the sky with my own two eyes versus uh, submit myself to the will of an invisible man with a long beard who created the whole universe but somehow cares whether or not 
I do the right thing every day? I mean, which is ultimately the more outrageous belief system, religion or UFOs? This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and on our UFO Roundtable, we are featuring Mac Tony's Jeff Richmond, yeah. well, Nicholas yeah. Redfern, and that other entity who is possessing David Bietney right now. I don't know who he is. I don't know, but I, I I don't like him. But I like Mac, and I like Nick. But I think Jeff smells like cheese. And I don't like Thank cheese you. that smells like cheese. That's kind of like fish that smells like fish. That ain't good to eat, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Thanks. <laughs> Where were we anyway? I'm, I'm sorry. Gene, get control of the conversation again, quick. Okay, David, please go back in your box. Oh, yeah. Okay. Watch out. I'll go pick up my guitar again and start singing UFO songs. Watch out. (laughs) Well, you see, the other thing, of course, is that this discussion that we have, that the ETH is just one of many explanations and maybe others that are more apt, that's restricted to a small in-crowd. The average person, when you say UFO, spaceships. Yeah, they think aliens. Yeah, right. Right. It's either spaceships or nothing. There is no other possible answer. The world is a very complex place, and as we become more technologically capable in this complex world, it becomes, I think, clearer and clearer to anybody with any amount of rational, reasonable thought behind them that you cannot boil the world down into a binary model, that it's not a world of black and white, us versus them, left versus right, that really this world is about the shades of gray in between. And... Certainly, if we're going to make any progress as a species, we have to move into that newer way of thinking. Otherwise, we really are doomed. Gee, it got really quiet. You noticed that? I heard a ding. Well, Mac, you just volunteered to be our next speaker in response to that comment. (laughs) I heard a little ominous sounding ding. Ding. I heard that, too. That's Stan Stan Friedman has been setting entities over to listen to us. Yeah, that's me. I'm Leo, the entertainer. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you you ask that? You asked about uh, uh, semen samples from Barney Hill? Why did you ask that? Why? Why did you ask that? Well, Stan, because it's a relevant question. Why did you ask it? Well, there were those round warts around his genitals. So what? I'm laughing. Laugh at me. <laughs> Buy my book. Look, I have a book here. It has it has pictures. 
And it has words, and by the way, did I mention I'm a nuclear physicist? Right there, it says on the cover. It got really quiet again. <laughs> what did I volunteer for? Remind me real quick. Well, I think we were going what? to respond to the fact that the UFO field is, to the public, it is either ETH or nothing. And you as a proponent of other alternative theories, that there are other possibilities we should look at, what do you think could be done, Mac, to make people realize the UFO enigma is a lot more complicated than we think? Well, I, I kind of like what Nick said about the old guard dying off, because that's the structure of scientific scientific revolutions. Your old paradigm, your new paradigm triumphs, not because it, you win any arguments over over your Shermers and your and your hardline ufologists, but because the old guard dies off and it's replaced by new people without those preconceptions and those biases. So it's possible that the ETH could 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 experience a renaissance. Uh, right now, we're still talking about, well, Friedman, for example, he talks about you know nuclear propulsion, which I find exceedingly unlikely in the case that we're being visited by aliens mm-hmm. from another solar system. But the cool, new, the cool news for the ETH is that we're dealing with, uh, we're living in a world now where we're, we're fabricating objects remotely. Uh, we're, we're using uh, quantum teleportation. We're using uh, ultra ultra-light, ultra-tough materials, nanotechnology, uh, all kinds of different technologies that enable uh, virtual communication. We're kind of creating reality on our own own terms. And uh, technologies like this are going to play a big role, assuming we make it as a species. They're going to play a a huge role in in how we live day-to-day and how we uh, eventually accomplish flight to other stars and other planets. So the whole metal ship argument, you know, which with its nuts and bolts strappings, well, we're going to we're going to have to reexamine that in light of new technologies that make the traditional nuts and bolts spacecraft powered by powered by nuclear rockets seem like you know something out of the Victorian era. So the ETH isn't necessarily dead. We you know we've been kind of talking about it like it's like it's ancient and brittle and about to break, and maybe it is. But on the other hand, it's still one of those cards on the on the on the table. It's still viable, like Jeff said, and so we, we shouldn't discount it. I think it might kind of come into its own. It might be an idea. Strangely enough, it kind of arrived before its time. Hmm. So I'm still sympathetic to the ETH. It's one of the back to the you know the multiplexity of this of this whole enigma. VKH is one of many possibilities. And who's to say that we couldn't be dealing with various possibilities at the same time? You know, if, if we could be living in a in a multiverse that allows entities from other universes to interact with our own at times. We could be dealing with with uh, tulpas, thought projections of some of some sort, something we don't understand, some sort of uh, forgotten technology of, of the mind. We could be dealing with some sort of misunderstood temporal lobe aber- apparition that Works in tandem with the Earth's magnetic fields, uh, which is which is cool in itself, and we could be dealing with some sort of indigenous species. Maybe I mean all of these are not mutually exclusive, and in fact, they to a degree they they might even complement each other in certain circumstances. So, yeah, it's it's a big dangerous, strange world, and our attempts to compartmentalize all of this data into these little neat categories is pretty futile. Well, that's part of the way the world is, the way the world yeah. works. We want black and white, this distinction. We had an ongoing discussion in our message forums about that on the PowerCast, and that is that we are all inclined to look at things as black and white, Republican, Democrat, good versus evil, without looking at all those shades and be... For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. 
Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. On our UFO roundtable, Jeff Ritzman, Mac Tony's Nicholas Redfern. Nick, you want to chime in here? Yeah, I think just sort of on the same track, not to go over old ground, but I think... You know, when Mac was talking just now, one of the one of the interesting things I think is, you know, when it comes to people who believe in the ETH or accept the ETH, to me, what I find puzzling is some, sometimes almost the vehemence with which the UFO research community insists that that has, that has to be the answer. You know, I don't understand why, like with Mac, for example, it's not possible to simply say, hey, you know, here's an interesting theory, here's an idea, let's explore it. And see where it leads. Why do we have to, you know, see so many people coming into the subject or just upholding one particular theory for a mystery that still remains unresolved, you know, countless decades onwards? And I think some of it, at least, does come down to the fact that for certain elements of the community, you know, this is, I guess, if you like, not just an investigative area, but, you know, people who organize conferences, have magazines, etc. There's a lot of, there's a lot at stake. It's not just, you know, the nature of what the UFO subject is or what lies at the heart of it. It's actually, you know, everything that's being constructed literally and physically around it. And I think, you know, there needs to be less emphasis on, oh, how do we get, you know, 500 people at this conference or at that conference and more emphasis on you know, just actual hard research that might provide some answers. Well, we're back to taking the profit motive out of it and, and getting some real funding to do some real independent research. One thing I thought I think is important to mention is that as far as the ETH theory goes, now is a time when perhaps above all others, there's a lot of reason to believe in that because of the simple idea that if we talked about extrasolar planets, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the response you would get is, well, gee, um, we don't know about that. It's possible, but we don't know. We don't know. I think anybody who <laughs> is reasonably thoughtful, even back then, would think there's no way that you know this stellar system where we live is the only planetary system. Now, not only do we know that there are other planets around other stellar bodies, but indeed, if anything, that's an area of astronomy where... Really, it's almost like mundane now. There are new planets discovered almost every week, and we're discovering, you know, other planets with water, other planets with oxygen. I mean, we're discovering some amazing things on some of, you know, Jupiter's the moons. So, you know, certainly in terms of the idea that there are other planets, well, if there was ever a doubt about that, as I said, I don't think there is, or there hasn't ever been for me. I think that's completely off the table now because. We know there are other planets. Something I think is very important, though, to bring up about this thing that Max said about this idea that, you know, ETH versus CTH, that these are not mutually exclusive. I think not only is Mac exactly right about that, 
But something that I've come to really believe, and I don't like using that word, as listeners know, but something I really believe now is that there's some number of these encounters between humans and these creatures where the creatures promote the idea to the humans that they're extraterrestrial and they're not. I think that, if anything, they're trying to get people to believe that they're extraterrestrials when indeed maybe they're not. And the reasoning behind that to me is pretty obvious. If you're a human being and you think that these creatures source from another planet and then go back to that another that other planet, you're potentially much less likely to feel threatened by them. Versus if you found out all of a sudden these creatures were living alongside us in a dimensional offset or under the the, the surface of the planet or on the dark side of the moon or you know take your pick your poison, um, that we'd be much less comfortable with this, and we would perhaps not be so accepting of this. And I think that there's a good possibility that that is indeed the case. It reminds me of the the, the Hill abduction with the star map, which is very conspicuous mm-hmm. and makes really no sense. Well, now, why do you say to that? Show someone a, a map of, of space, like a spaceship's going to operate on on principles like that, where you're going to where you're going to be, be at the steering wheel, looking at a map as you fly between stars. Well, is that necessarily the way it was put forward? I mean, from my understanding, well, no, not it's, necessarily. But right, I, I know right. Jacques Vallée has made an argument against it, kind of basically espousing that uh, it's that's not the way a spaceship navigates. You know, especially an interstellar spacecraft. Like it sounds like, like a show put on for their benefit, Mac, you know? Exactly, right. right. That's what hits me. As soon as I see that everything that they observe, the way they communicated everything, was a show for their benefit, not to necessarily introduce themselves to Earthlings. Well, but we're back to motivation. If you had an advanced civilization that was interacting with us, what benefit would it be to them to reveal themselves? And this is the thing about the calls for disclosure that we are constantly hearing, that the government should give us disclosure, that we should you know, have all of the quote-unquote facts and the reality of this unveiled before us. I continue to believe that if we really were presented with the reality of this, it, it would not be what we think it is, I think, for many of us. And I think for many of us, it would be profoundly uncomfortable. So when people demand disclosure, I think we're back to this idea that they're demanding a revelation that fits with their view of what it should be. And if it's not what their expectation is, well, then essentially, they'll not even accept it. They'll just say, well, no, I don't buy into that. No, I don't believe that. Even if it were the truth, or is there an actual objective truth? That's well, the yeah, really you did a second disclosure movement to disclose the real truth. <laughs> there you go, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> God, I mean, the real so, disclosure version. I mean, that, that's that's uh, Dave. That's what you that said. Somebody yeah, said you at, you a, fun at meeting. that meeting. Yeah. You know, I mean, give me the Reader's Digest version. There's there's not one. You know, I mean, it, it, it obviously is shown, if nothing else, that it's incredibly complex and it's probably subjective in more ways than we even think about. And, um, you know, when you talk about the what if they're living, we were talking about that the other night. What if they're living right beside of us and we can't see them because essentially, as I was told one time, you're numb. You know, you've got only so many senses that everything is based off of, and 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 what then? I mean, and, and, and let's qualify this, then, Jeff, so that yeah. Mac and and Nick understand. Jeff has been on our show before. I don't know if you guys know much about Jeff Jeff's background, but he is what I would categorize as an extreme experiencer. Jeff has had, or he claims to have had, a very wide range of interactions with these things, and. Um, uh, I have found Jeff's descriptions of, ex- of his experiences very compelling, and 
I think there are really interesting clues in this if Jeff is actually telling the truth. And, of course, Jeff, we have people yeah. on the forums that say, you know, why do you have that guy on the show? Why do you believe everything he yeah. says? Yeah. <laughs> you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, I mean, I've dealt with that for years. I don't even care about that anymore. It is what it is. And I don't, you know, like I've said before, I don't claim to know what any of it is. I don't even know if it's not me. I mean, I can't even disqualify myself out of it. Or like Max said, some kind of conscious thing that, that we don't know about or or you know, projections, what, I mean, whatever. But I mean, I, I, I can certainly say that in a great number of times, I wasn't alone and the people around me saw the same damn thing I did. But I mean, as far as clues and stuff, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of weird stuff that's been said and, and, uh, that, I mean, there was something that I brought up to you a while back that I don't even remember right now, but you said, you know, uh, I find that to be a really interesting clue. Oh, the, the, uh, that's your hearing the universe. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah. The gong. Yeah. The gong. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. It's stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you tell somebody about it. People mull it over and think about it like you did and said, well, maybe it's this. I mean, there, I can't say that, that out of everything that, that had happened, uh, over, the course of my life that I really gained anything as far as knowing more about them, you know, but I, I always tell people, you know, I learned volumes about me, which I don't, maybe that's the whole point. I don't right. know. But I remember them telling me at one point, uh, you're numb in the, in the aspect of saying you're blind. You, you can't see anything. You don't see everything that's around you. And I don't even know or remember what that was in response to or what I even said because I barely ever get anything out when, when that kind of stuff happens. And it, it hasn't happened now for, wow, 12 years, years now, you know, yeah. something like that. I mean, it's been a long while and um, very small instances, but nothing that is, it was as poignant as what used to happen. But, I mean, like I said, I learned volumes about me. I learned what I'm afraid of, why I'm afraid of it. I certainly knew what, I learned what hyper-reality means. <laughs> And and uh, and a lot of fear, a lot of fear stuff. The nature of why I fear things, and I mean that's deep stuff. And uh, that may have been the point, but at the same time, when I tried to tell certain people about how I found the experience to be and how it ended for me, I mean I can relate to what I think. I think uh, Nick had said earlier about they don't they want to talk in a back room about what they really think it is, but what they present to the public is a different thing because they don't want to get kicked off the circuit. And I experienced that very thing because I went in front of a group in Washington D.C. years ago, and I said, you know, I believe it's toxic. I believe that it's inherently negative, at least as far as we go, which may not be any fault of either party. It may just be that the relationship itself is toxic. Hey, let me just um, tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have another couple of sessions to spend on our UFO Roundtable featuring Mac Tonys, Nicholas Redfern, and Jeff Ritzman. And before you go back with what you were saying, Jeff, I wanted to mention something which I've never mentioned on the air before. And it was an encounter I had with Dr. Hynek, believe it or not, and Charles Berlitz, this was at the time that the Berlitz book, The Bermuda Triangle, was very popular. And we go back to the mid-70s for this, okay? And I introduced these two people because I didn't know Dr. Heineck that well. I knew Charles Berlitz fairly well at the time. And they were talking in this hotel room, and Heineck was asking Berlitz, 
how do I sell more books? That was uppermost in his mind at that point. Right. Now, the other issue, however, is that when I interviewed Dr. Hynek, Dr. Hynek, in his talks with me, showed me that he thought UFOs were a lot more complicated than nuts and bolts. He believed that. Maybe he didn't express that in his book so much, but he definitely believed that privately in his final years. So, you know, that may be going to what you were saying there, is that the UFO research community, a lot of them have the lecture circuit, the books. They go out there and they say the things that will sell books that will get people to buy their tickets. Sure. Privately, they have much more reasonable theories. You don't have them say these things on radio and TV shows because, again, that affects their public image. Exactly. And that's, you know, and the unpopular opinion, you know, is is not the one that, I mean, the funny thing was, was at that particular event was that, I mean, you had people like Richard Hall in the audience and whatnot. So I was like wickedly nervous <laughs> speaking in front of him. But uh, I have a history with Richard done, Hall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I when I got done that talk, I mean, I was I was gratified because a lot of people came up to me and said, "I know exactly what you're talking about, and I can relate to that," and so on and so forth. Dick Hall came up to me and said, "Congratulations on your talk. That took a lot of guts to do that." But at the same time, the person who ran the conference after I came off the podium. They, of course, went up there, and, and <laughs> I always told my wife she apologized for me. And I'm like, you know, and I and I actually interjected into the conversation. I said, don't apologize for what I said because what I said is what I think. And you know, whether it's popular or unpopular, you know, you know it's also something to be considered, especially when people are out there that that um, David's seen and I've seen these people who are begging for something to come and visit them i think a lot of people don't know what the hell they're asking for they should speak and for themselves they don't know <laughs> yeah, do they? exactly exactly you I mean you talk about all the different theories that are out there i mean there's there's a lot of theories but i think there's other aspects of it that we have to look at that you know uh, the toxicity of of certain things that we have to really be aware of when you're looking into this kind of stuff nick you had been working on a book with i forget who the other author was dr ryan i think right about some toxic aspects of ufos right Right? Oh, Bob Ward. Yes. Yes. Can you tell us kind of what that's about? Because maybe it does relate to some of the things we're talking about, toxic UFOs, for example. Yeah, well, basically, um, what it was, Bob Ward's working on a book that he um, referenced at last year's Crash UFO Conference, Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas that Ryan Wood puts on every year. And Bob's working on a book that looks at one of the aspects of the Majestic 12 documents, the the notion that, you know, the aliens, if you like, for want of a better term, uh, are infected with virus that are, you know, very lethal to us, shall we say. Now, you know, this is just one theory, and, you know, I did some research and some work for Bob and, and sent him the findings for inclusion in his book. I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out yet, but certainly it's on the cards, and uh, that's that's Bob's big area is, the you know, the, the, the whole alien virus angle of the subject. But, um, you know, I think it's one of these issues that, you know, is controversial by nature because a lot of it stems from things like the Majestic 12 documents, which are themselves controversial. So, you know, I think that's one of the problems with the UFO subject is that so much of it is steeped in original controversy that, you know, that's one of the reasons why there's so much infighting within the subject is because everything is steeped in controversy. That's just the nature of the subject. And I think, and I'm not just saying it because Mac's here, I think Mac's research that he's doing into the crypto-terrestrial theory is sort of the most 
interesting and exciting because it's actually sort of breaking away from the rigid paradigms of the last 60 years and pointing out some of the flaws in the ETH and also the, you know, the suspicions as to why we're being constantly told these things are alien and why in some cases the technology seems highly advanced and in other cases it seems curiously almost quaint, you know, to use a literal term uh, in nature. You know, I, I think, as we've sort of broadly mentioned today, that we just need to sort of break out of the box, not worry so much about the lecture circuit, just get the information out and, you know, see where it all leads. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host host and you'll learn more about host i can gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the paracast.com that's news at the paracast.com and don't forget to check out our website at the paracast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums also please patronize our sponsors tell them that you heard their ads on the paracast They'll appreciate it, and we will, too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Okay, we have one more session with our special guest on the Paracast. We're talking, of course, to Nicholas Redfern, Mac Tonys, Jeff Ritzman, and maybe in this last section we could all get together and talk about what could be done, if anything, to fix, repair the UFO field, fix what ails it, get things going. I don't think it's going to happen myself because of the egos involved, but what do you guys think? We just heard from Nick. How about you, Mac? Okay. I, I, I think you're right. I think there's too much ego to, to consciously repair it. So I think our best bet is to kind of subvert it, you know, kind of kind of apply a kind of a punk mentality and kind of change it from within, kind of infiltrate. And uh, that's something that uh, will require less brute force, uh, but it will require a lot more savvy and a lot more a lot more insight into, into the workings the, the workings of you know how these ideas work and and why people are so attracted to these these ideas. I don't mean to heavily you know politicize over politicize the whole UFO field. I think this is an will be a natural process that will that will get its start from an infusion of healthy new ideas. People are addicted to you know the thing familiar it's because it's because it's comforting on, on a weird level ironically to a lot of people the idea that uh, we're being invaded by you know little spindly gray aliens from zeta reticuli that abduct us at their will is comforting and it fills a certain psychological void for, for, for people collectively and i'd like to wonder what their psychological void is though because i think that would be damned frightening well yeah and that's an argument made on you know being made by many abduction researchers they say you know this can't be a belief system 
system. This can't be mass hysteria because who would want to believe this? Because it would be, like you said, damn frightening. And for a lot of people it is. But at the same time, it, it fulfills the role of many stories that are familiar to us from, for, you know, for thousands of years. It's kind of a quasi-religious the kind of religious conviction that we're you know we're not alone. Uh, there's someone else, and they care about us. Those two facts alone um, make the idea that we're being infiltrated by gray aliens. Sure, but that's just organized religion in a different guise. Yeah, exactly, and, and kind of and kind of uh, twisted into in a kind of an evil guise. But nevertheless, it still has some of the major tenets of organized religion. Sure, you have good aliens, you have evil aliens. They are here to help us rather than to harm us. At least the ones, the blonde Venusians, who maybe are blonde from Alpha Centauri now or whatever. Even if even if they're there to harm us, it, at least that belief system inherently states that they they care about us and that they're aware of us. And uh, that, I think that really strokes our our ego on a, on, a, on a mass level. They found and us that's right not here. To say it's not true. It's sure. not to say there aren't great great. A lot of these beings do appear to be have the characteristics we associate with with zeta reticulans, which I, I don't think for a minute they're actually these things actually come from zeta reticuli. I think that can be traced as a, as a contemporary myth. But as far as changing the whole, it's changing our perception of, of this whole thing. I think I think like. Like like I said before, and, and like uh, Nick mentioned, the old guard is going to die off, and it will invariably re- be replaced with something. And I really doubt that's going to be that it's going to be replaced by the same thing all over again. Because uh, we we have been through that, our society has been through that, and the uh, whole community has been through it. And I think we retain a memory that it's, it's we've learned what we what we can, we've extracted what we can from that, and we'll be forced to move on for good or ill. And uh, that's that's still up to us. Whether whether ufology degenerates even further, we've kind of assumed, you know, all along that it's going to be replaced by something that will be better. But there's no guarantee of that. It might be you know, ufology might get, if you can imagine this, might get even kookier. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is that we is that we shake off our our binary outlook that, that David mentioned and uh, start seeing some of the gray areas. And I think only then will we start putting pieces together. Jeff, uh, again, I, again, there's. No, there's no quick fix for it, in my opinion. I mean, looking at it now, it's more bizarre now than it was five years ago to me. People are even more obsessed with the the ETH and the the lizard people and the, and the grasshopper ones and and the praying mantis people and all. I mean, it's just to me, it's gotten more bizarre. So when Max said it's going to get, it could get kookier. Yeah, I think it's absolutely going to get kookier. I mean, I and I've said this to David a countless times that I have feel some sometimes that the best course of action for for people who are genuinely interested in trying to figure at least part of this out before we're all gone is to more or less kind of shut yourself off and do your thing and try to be objective about it and when you have something to say how popular it's going to be or how dispopular it's going to be and just say it you know but i think kind of almost hermiting yourself away for this storm to pass and for people to get hungry for something that's uh that's a little bit more i don't know cerebral in in its in its outlook rather than you know the, whatever the easy condensed reader's digest version is i mean i'm convinced that with that as far as you know a lot of things in life that you know, things run their course things die out and uh and they get replaced with new and sometimes more plausible or more interesting things and um you know my my outlook has been kind of lock myself away and and do my own thing and and when i have something that comes up that's 
that I think is truly interesting, then I say it. I don't think there's any great fix. I think it's just, you know, time is going to tell what's going to happen. David, you want to sum up before I ask our guests to tell us more about where to get in touch with them? Sure. I think that ultimately we can either take the pessimistic view or the optimist view. I'm going to do something a little different here. I'm going to state that in the next few years, there will be an event. There will be an interaction that is going to, I suspect, change the flavor and the tone of this debate. I think that this is the thing that we've all been essentially waiting for. Some seminal sighting, seminal event that is absolutely irrefutable, that if nothing else, essentially forces everybody's hand. And I think that there's a good possibility that that's going to happen in the next maybe three to five years, and that it will... That will be the event that shakes off the um, the old wood. That will be the event that sort of pushes the the brush to the side. And I think that we need an event like that, a mass sighting, one that is, again, irrefutable, some disclosure of information that's not the whole enchilada, but some key component of it. Someone's going to screw up somewhere, and something's going to come out, and Hopefully, we'll all recognize that when it happens, and there'll be some of us who throw caution to the wind, grab a hold of it, and ride it. And I think that with that in mind, if that were to happen, maybe we will see not an evolutionary move forward, but a revolutionary move forward. Oh, boy. Okay, let's just write that down and check back in a couple of years. Mac Tonys, you have a website, MacTonys.com, and you're working on a book that's going to cover this crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. When's that due out? I don't know when it's going to do out yet. I just I just know when I plan on finishing it. A little little late. I had kind of a move, a move going on and stuff and and other excuses. And uh, but no, I am still working. In fact, I just uh, wrote a chapter a couple days ago and uh, coming along coming along well and. I just want to be able to get a good product down at this point. Nick Redfern. I kind of suffered from a little little bit of jumping around, and I want this one to read a little bit more smoothly because a lot of it's cold for material that I've already written, and I don't want it to have that scattered flavor when you read it. I want it to have a little more narrative continuity. So uh-huh. I'm taking a little extra time with it, but I think it'll I think it'll be you know yeah, a nice addition to the debate for whatever whatever it's worth. Hopefully, people will like it. We'll keep us posted. NickRedfern.com is Nick site. You have some new books coming out that you want to mention? Yeah, I've actually got one out right now, which is called, it's actually a little bit of a departure for me, it's called Celebrity Secrets, and it's a study of government files on how and why the FBI watched Hollywood celebrities from sort of pretty much the late 30s through to the 70s. Uh, you know, we know all about the usual people like Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra, but this covers everybody like Abbott and Costello, John Wayne. Abbott John and Costello? Smith. You're kidding me? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, they had a big FBI file. Oh, boy. Really? Uh, yeah, all sorts of people oh. that you just wouldn't imagine were being watched by the FBI. Oh. So uh, got that out right there, and people can get the books at nickredfern.com, and I also have a blog, ufomystic.com, which I uh, update daily, and which I do with uh, Greg Bishop. Okay, well, we do have a link to the nickredfern.com website as the mactonies.com website. And Jeff Ritzman, you're going to update your blog soon, so our link doesn't no. go dead? <laughs> no, I'm working all the time. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of backburnered right now jeff.ritzman at gmail.com if anybody wants to communicate at all that's my email okay thank you very much gentlemen jeff ritzman nicholas redfern mac tonys thank you all for joining us this week on the powercast thanks Thanks, guys guys. yeah thank you 
The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.